From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a question many of us are asking in the face of COVID-19. What does the end of this look like? When the stay-at-home order is lifted, how does normal begin again? How the governor answered. Then, staying sober during the pandemic, CPR's Vic Vela on how recovery meetings, like so many meetings, have gone virtual. But do they do the trick? Vic's the host of our recovery podcast, Back From Broken, and the latest episode is about his journey. Cocaine had been the only life I had known. Like, it was scary to think of life without it. Vix brought the episode with him, and we'll give it a listen. There would be times I'd be laying in bed, praying for my heart to stop beating, so that all my pain would go away. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's start with a question many of us have contemplated, a question C.J. Dickinson of Arvada asked Governor Jared Polis last night during a COVID-19 virtual town hall. What does the end of this look like? When the stay-at-home order is lifted, how does normal begin again? So first, let's talk about when we get back to totally normal. That means stadiums full of people, uh, you know, congregations of thousands of people going to mass. Uh, a lot of that will need a cure or a vaccine, meaning when can we go back to the way things were just two or three months ago? Uh, there needs to be a cure vaccine. What's going to happen first is an opening of everything to, of the economy, but we'll still have to be very wary about those large gatherings, how we do them. People will see masks. We'll have to jump on any uh, infection with test, mass testing, isolation. So what you're going to see is, yes, people will be able to go back to work. And our goal is about uh, five days before the rest of the country, April 26th. If we can do it even a day or two earlier, that's hundreds of millions of dollars of economic productivity of you earning a living. And yes, if it takes a few days more, uh, we have to make that call. But what that means is, yes, people are going into work. It doesn't mean that bars and restaurants are opening in the same way right away. It might mean that uh, a week or two later, restaurants have to have, you know, half capacity. We're working and we have the business community, the health community working together on kind of what these guidelines will look like. Just one exchange from that virtual town hall hosted by Nine News and simulcast last night here on CPR News. Kyle Clark was the moderator, and Kyle's on the phone with us from his home, where he's also been anchoring his daily news program next. Kyle, welcome to our show. Thanks, Ryan. A glancing reference in the governor's answer there to mass testing. You received hundreds of questions from the public for the governor, and I understand that testing was by far the most asked about subject. What did you learn about testing last night? I'm not sure that they broke any new ground on testing, but I think they reaffirmed what a lot of Coloradans already know, which is mass testing far beyond our current capabilities is a requirement to reopen society. Hmm. So as long as we're not able to get to mass testing like we've seen in places like Singapore and Hong Kong and South Korea, we're not at a position to reopen the economy. Yeah, I didn't hear much of how they get there, but the state epidemiologist, Dr. Rachel Hurley, he, who also joined you, talked about serological testing, which can detect if you have had the disease at some point in the past. She said eventually the goal will be to do more of that as well. I appreciated your focus on mountain communities, which were, of course, hit early and hard by COVID-19, uh, and they were hit both health-wise and economically. You asked if there might be, in general, 
some sort of state stimulus and specifically extra attention paid to recovery in the mountain communities. Uh, Did you get a solid answer there? I always want viewers and listeners to be the judge of whether answers were satisfying. Mm. But as a journalist, I wanted to hear more from the governor and his team on relief for mountain communities. You heard the governor acknowledge in some of his clearest language yet that mass gatherings are a vaccine length away. So we're talking possibly 18 months away and that a travel shutdown and a tourism shutdown could follow much the same trajectory. But when we asked specifically about the mountain communities and relief there, the answer that we got is one that we've heard from him before, which is the mountains will always be there. The natural beauty will always be there. And and with all respect, I wasn't asking about the mountains. I was asking about the people and what relief will be for the the people who rely on that tourism to make their lives up there. There was one response from the governor that stood out to me about mountain communities, that he thought there would be a long tail on the difficulties for the tourism industry. Uh, That is to say, it might lag behind the recovery of other industries, given that people may still be reluctant to travel, reluctant to fly. I think you made some news last night, the governor hinting that he might extend the freeze on most evictions for another month. What did you learn last night, Kyle Clark? Uh, I I was also very interested in this issue of uh, evictions and rent moratoriums and We had other questions about mortgages that we didn't get to that are piling up in similar ways as banks allow people a one to three month grace period. There's water building behind that dam of people who can't pay their rent, who can't pay their mortgage, who are appreciative of a one, two, three month freeze, but will have no more ability to pay when that day comes than they do now. And we know that. And the governor knows that. And it was pretty clear that they don't have a solution they're ready to roll out at this point before that dam breaks. Well, thank you for being with us. And thanks for sharing your work with us, Kyle. It was my pleasure. And thank you guys for everything you're doing at CPR. It's very much needed. Kyle Clark, host of Next on Nine News and moderator of last night's virtual town hall featuring Governor Jared Polis and some members of his administration. If you didn't get to watch it, it's parked on the Colorado Public Radio Facebook page. Let's reflect for a moment on the word meeting. At work, that word may make you cringe. In a different context, A meeting can be a lifesaver, like a 12-step meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, or Narcotics Anonymous. Without the connection and intimacy of that sort of meeting, how are folks maintaining their sobriety? It's a question we want to put to our own Vic Vela. He's weekend host at CPR and creator of the podcast Back From Broken about addiction recovery. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan, I miss your face, man. Uh, I miss your face, too. Uh, But it's nice to hear your voice. Let's start with you personally. Is it harder to stay sober when you are staying at home? I think for a lot of people, it is absolutely. Um, I'm secure enough in my recovery at this on this particular day. And remember, recovery is all about one day at a time. Mm. Uh, But there's a lot of folks who... um, who aren't as lucky as I am. Some folks are new to recovery, and when you're new to uh, sobriety, you don't quite have that foundation yet. Um, and let's remember, for me and for a lot of people, isolation meant getting high, okay? Isolation meant closing the blinds and doing cocaine all night by myself. And so now if you're in recovery, 
all of a sudden the world is shut down around you, right? And that can be a really scary place, but it doesn't have to be. And I'll talk about that later, but isolation can definitely be a trigger. For one, it's just a lot of time to be in your head. Yeah. And that's the last place you want to be if you're an addict. And also, how do you deal with the unexpected when you're alone? What happens if you lose your job? What about a tragedy? I'll give you an example just from last night. John Prine was a hero to me. Uh, He died from coronavirus. Okay, I'm heartbroken over his death. I cried last night. You know, he was a Chicago mailman who wrote like Mark Twain. How do you not love that guy? (laughs) And it made me think back to when Jerry Garcia died. And me and my buddies sat on a golf course and just got drunk in the middle of the day. Okay, so the old default setting for me is to get hammered when something bad happens because we don't want to feel that pain. In life before coronavirus, you could go to a meeting or maybe you could, uh, you're at work, so you're keeping yourself busy, your mind occupied. But now you have all this time in your head. And does that thing like your favorite songwriter dying, is that all it takes to cause a relapse? It absolutely can. And so how have recovery meetings adapted to this new environment? Are are you Zooming and Facebooking and all that? (laughs) Who's Zooming who, Aretha? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, you know, online meetings uh, uh, are out there and there's a lot of them and that's a good thing. But uh, there's challenges to that. Not everyone is uh, computer savvy. First of all, I used Zoom for the first time in my life, like just a few weeks ago. And I think a lot of people are in the same boat and that could be a challenge. Then there's security issues. Uh, We're seeing a lot of recovery meetings online being hacked and hackers coming in and disrupting meetings. So uh, I think ultimately too, Ryan, there's really nothing that can replace that connection you get at a recovery meeting, you know, the hugs and the applause and the coins and the coffee, that brotherhood, that sisterhood, uh, you can't really replicate that in an online setting. That being said, online recovery meetings really can be great, and I'm glad they're out there. Are you afraid that this crisis will fuel more addiction? <laughs> it's funny you ask that. I was reading, catching up on some news from the last couple weeks Uh, The Associated Press actually just last week reported that the sales of alcohol in the U.S. rose like 55 percent in the week ending March 21st. I mean, that's amazing. I am worried because if you're working from home, especially if you live alone, there's no boss in the room. There's no co-workers. You could just drink all day. And, uh, you know, I was reading in the in another I think it was the Chicago Tribune, Ryan, like Google searches for the word board doubled last month. And so as we say in recovery rooms, idle hands are the devil's workshop, or as my mom used to say too. Okay. We have about 30 seconds. Um, What's keeping you from using these days? Meditation um, and talking, calling the phone, picking up the phone and calling as many people as I possibly can every single day and helping others because helping others helps my sobriety. Vic, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Vic Vela, Weekend host at CPR News and host and creator of the podcast Back From Broken. The latest episode is Vic's own story, how he got addicted to drugs and how he found a path out of the darkness. Before we listen, we should note this episode includes talk of heavy drug use, overdosing, and some strong language. In the summer of 2002, I was unemployed. I was recently fired from a job as a morning show anchor for a TV network in Colorado, mainly because I was doing a lot of drugs. My drug dealer was a no-nonsense, tough, tattooed guy. 
He had been my dealer for a long time, and we developed a relationship where he would front me large quantities of cocaine. And the idea was that I would sell the drugs while also uh, paying for my own habit. And I would use that money to pay him back. Problem is, all my profits went up my nose. When you're a cocaine addict and you have several hundred dollars worth of cocaine at your disposal, you're going to do it. (laughs) It's not even a question. So this time I owed him a lot of money, hundreds of dollars. But I was out of work and had no money to pay him back. So he's leaving me threatening phone calls. And it was getting scary. He was threatening to kill me unless I gave him back his money. So I call my dealer to let him know I had his money finally. I I apologize for ignoring his calls. Sorry, man, I'm on my way, though, I promise. And when I got there, he was calm, which, which put me at ease. That was until he shut the door behind me. And the next thing I felt was his fist against the back of my head. I fell to the ground and I looked up at the barrel of a gun. I'm scared to death and I'm begging for my life, but he just stood there with no emotion holding that gun over me. Then he started kicking me in the head, kicking my ribs, kicking me in the face. And while that was happening, for some reason I'll always have the memory of a fish tank in the room. And I could just hear the water filtering from the fish tank. And that's what I was focusing on while he was beating me up. And the whole time I'm thinking, how did things ever get this far? This is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Vic Vela. And normally on this show, I talk to men and women about their comeback stories, stories about recovery from drug and alcohol abuse, from trauma, from the dark places they've escaped from, the same dark places that many people never escape from. Well, today, it's my story. In other episodes, I haven't held back about my own drug problem, but now we're going to really get into it. It'll help explain where I'm coming from and what this podcast is all about. And I'm going to start from the top because my problems got going long before I ever started using drugs. I grew up in Longmont, Colorado, and I have a loving family, a large Latino household, parents who loved me unconditionally, no doubt about it. But we had a lot of problems. My parents struggled financially. And there were times when we were just flat out poor. And my dad, who I love and adore, he was a family man. He, he served our country in the army. He would give you the shirt off his back. But when he drank, he was often really miserable to be around. And on top of that, I'm gay. And I knew that I was gay at a young age, but this was small town Colorado in the 1980s and 90s. And being gay wasn't exactly widely embraced at the time. So here I am. Look, uh, I I live in a poor family. My dad's an alcoholic. And I'm struggling with the fact that I'm gay and different than other kids. So already I'm dealing with all these insecurities at a young age. And I'm dealing with them in really unhealthy ways. 
by doing the drugs and the drinking, I think that was kind of his comfort. Hi, I'm Ida, and I'm Vic's mom. And I'm Vic Senior, and Vic is our son. Vic was uh, always a uh, smart kid in school. The only problem Vic had was taking orders. And what I mean by orders, I'm referring to like teachers. He just felt like he wasn't being understood, I guess. He said he used to pray so hard to God that to take all these feelings away from, you know, the gay thing. I think that he was having a really hard time with that. And uh, the drinking and all that probably helped him through all that. I don't know. When I smoked weed and drank, it just made me feel like I was floating on a cloud. All my insecurities just seemed manageable. I remember taking LSD for the first time. I was laying in my friend's bed and listening to an old Grateful Dead bootleg from the 1970s. Watching the patterns on the ceiling dance to songs like Big River. And it just made me so happy. It was just the craziest thing I'd ever experienced. And I was just thinking to myself, why wouldn't I want to feel like this every day? I mean, why wouldn't I want to get high every day? This is great. When I got out of high school, I was accepted to Metropolitan State University of Denver. And so I moved from small town Longmont to the big city of Denver And I came out of the closet. And so now I'm 18, I'm in college, first person in my family to go to college. And my friends and family know and love me for exactly who I am. Every person I came out to, um, for the most part, it was a great experience, and I'm grateful for that. In college, I didn't stop drinking. You know, I had a fake ID, and I went to bars and everything. But I did start getting better grades. Now I'm taking classes, studying things I want to study, like journalism and broadcasting. And, and I found that I was really excelling at those things. And I graduated college. It was a huge deal. My parents were so proud of me. Then just a month or so after graduating, I got my first job in journalism as a sports anchor for an NBC affiliate in Texas. This was the year 2000. And Vic is here. Um, more March Madness. Man, are we sick of it yet? No. No. Never. I mean, this is like the greatest tournament there is. And ah, you just can't wait for it every month. I'm only 23 years old. And I'm on TV. My face is on billboards, park benches, that kind of thing. The sky's the limit for me. Thomas, the big jam. Final four once again for Tom Izzo. But... A funny thing happened on the way to my dreams. I fell in love with cocaine. I first did cocaine in college, but it it really wasn't until I was living in Texas that cocaine and I got serious. (laughs) It started off as an innocent flirtation, maybe doing some blow at a party on a Saturday night or whatever. But then I started using it every day. And I started using it throughout the day. Often before I'd go on the air, Um, I'd have a lot of time to kill, so I'd go to a bar, have some drinks, then come back to the station with a nice buzz, head straight for the makeup room before I said hi to anyone in the newsroom, put on my makeup, adjust my tie, and then do some lines of cocaine off the toilet sink. Then I would just go on the air and do the live sportscast 
I did that all the time. I'm Andy Justice, and I worked with Vic back, oh, in the early 2000s. We both worked in sports there at the NBC affiliate here in Amarillo. And, you know, the thing with Vic is the guy is so lovable. I knew that he was doing drugs. I had no idea how big of a drug problem it was. I mean, I really didn't. I had no idea. But then things took a bad turn when I was laid off from my job. And that was really hard. Uh, even though that I knew that, you know, Vic struggled with getting to work at times and struggled with being mentally there 100% of the time, I was still rooting for him. So they said sorry, and they gave me a check, and I was on my way back to Colorado. This was 2001. And after a summer of getting high and selling cocaine to pay for my habit, I got another TV job in Colorado's mountains. And from that purchase, a legend was born. The legend that is Arapahoe Basin. It was a great gig, but I was doing a lot of drugs, and that took a heavy toll on my performance at work. Vic was not a good co-worker. My name is Brad Williamson, and I worked with Vic. He was a on-camera host, and I was the production manager. Vic and I were not just coworkers, we were good friends, and you know, we would go out and hang out. The difference was is that I would go to work, and I can remember this specific morning, we had a show that ran from 7 to 9, and he came in at probably 6.55 that morning, and he was in bad shape, and he was not nice to his coworkers. And at 9 a.m., as soon as we ended that show, he put on his coat and walked out the back door, and I followed him, and I'm like, where are you going? It's 9 a.m., we have a full day of work here. And he ignored me and kept walking, and I walked straight to the GM's office. Then I think five of us went to the GM, and we all said, we can't work with Vic anymore. And so that was the end of that. So I just lost my second TV job in as many years. So that brings us back to my story about the drug dealer. You know, the one who had a gun pointed at my face and was beating me up. So he's kicking my ass, and when he's finished, I'm bleeding from head to toe. And the second I got up off the floor and dusted myself off, you know what I did? I asked him if he could front me more drugs. Cocaine was my master. But somehow I did manage to advance my career at this time. Uh, I got accepted to the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. And I started freelancing for big publications. And I was interviewing a lot of uh, big names like uh, Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead and, and Janet Napolitano, who eventually became the head of the Department of Homeland Security. But what was also going on was I was spending so much money on drugs that I wasn't paying my credit card bills. And so I filed for federal bankruptcy in 2005. And at that time, my drug use was really taken off. It wasn't just cocaine. It was also meth. Had a lot of dangerous sexual encounters. I was using a lot of dangerous drugs in dangerous ways, whether it's snorting, smoking, or shooting. I was doing it. And so to escape from all that, I moved back to Colorado. Then one night, I got a real big wake-up call. I was driving a car with expired tags. I was high and drunk. And sure enough, a cop pulls me over. 
He stopped me for the expired tags, but then he starts asking me questions like, have you been drinking? I thought for sure I was going to jail. But before he could arrest me, the cop's radio starts going off. Points at me, throws my driver's license at me, get this car off the road, go home now. How in the hell did I get out of that? So that was a little bit of a wake-up call for me. And for the first time in my life, I was acknowledging to myself that, yeah, I think I have a problem here. And for the first time, I admitted that to friends and family. I admitted that my life had become unmanageable and I needed help. So in the spring of 2006, I checked into a 28-day rehab center in Estes Park, Colorado. It would be the first time I had gone an entire month without drinking or doing drugs since I was in junior high school. I was about 29 at the time. I didn't take rehab seriously at all. I was breaking all the rules. I just wasn't ready to stop using. And so, go figure, the day I checked out, I got high. Very common for someone to relapse right out of rehab if they don't take the steps that the rehab teaches them. Hi, my name is Rob, and my clean date is June 15th of 2003. The disease of addiction is something that you have, and just because you go to a 28-day rehab doesn't mean you, you still do not have that disease. With any disease, you have to take care of that disease and work on it. In the summer of 2006, I started to notice something that was going on with me. I wasn't feeling well. I was sick all the time. I was tired. And I kept getting bizarre rashes on my skin, and I just felt weak. I felt like I had the flu all the time. Doctors were running tests, and no one could figure out what was going on. Until one day, a doctor who knew my history and my lifestyle asked flat out, when's the last time you were tested for HIV? The results came back. I'm HIV positive. And I had what you would consider to be borderline AIDS. My viral load was through the roof, and my immune system was almost totally shot. I fell into a deep despair, and my uh, drug and alcohol use just accelerated. I did start taking medications to combat the virus, and, and they helped. Uh, they kept me alive. But my other disease, my addiction, got dramatically worse. More about that when we come back. If you have a vehicle you're ready to part with, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. And just like that, you'll turn your car into the news you rely on and the music you love. You might be wondering if you can still donate your vehicle right now. The answer is yes. In fact, you can donate your car without ever leaving your home. Start the donation process now on the support page at CPR.org. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And a bit of breaking news this morning. NPR is reporting that Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is suspending his campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination. Sanders, of course, won Colorado's presidential primary. Okay, let's return to Back from Broken, the recovery podcast from CPR News. Today, we're sharing a special episode about host Vic Vela's own journey. He just learned he was HIV positive and hadn't yet faced down his demons. Here's the thing about addiction. The same thing happens over and over and over again. It's like Groundhog Day. Drugs, alcohol, same patterns of bad behavior. In 2007, I got another journalism job. This one was in Santa Fe, where I was a crime reporter. I also had my first long-term boyfriend there. But old habits die hard. I got fired again. So I was broke, and I moved back to Denver yet again. But I just kept getting high. But I got another job covering politics at the state capitol for a group of suburban newspapers. So now I'm wearing a suit and tie every day covering state house politics. I covered gun legislation and elections reform and all kinds of important controversial measures. Sometimes I would break news from the bar. I would just be in the middle of a day, random Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning, getting drunk at my neighborhood bar. My phone is blowing up. Lawmakers who liked me said, hey, I'm about to introduce this bill, and I would break the news from the bar while my other reporter friends were at the Capitol working. (laughs) So there you go. How could I possibly have a problem? I'm good, (laughs) is is what I'm thinking. While I was um, conning myself into thinking that I didn't have a problem, the people close to me sure didn't feel that way. Um, My boyfriend, the guy I was dating in Santa Fe, um, we still maintained a long-distance relationship when I moved uh, to Denver, and it was his plan to move and be with me. But he called me one day and broke up with me, said, I can't, I can't handle the drugs anymore. I can't handle this anymore. And that was hard, hearing that. And so I did kind of go from thinking, uh, I'm doing all this great work at the Capitol, to maybe I do have a problem here. Maybe we should look into this. So it was around this time that I made another attempt to get sober. I met a sponsor. Hey, this is Rob again. I first met Vic when he, when he called the phone line. And at that point, I said, I'll meet you at a meeting. And then after that meeting, I gave him my phone number. But that didn't last long. It was a half-hearted attempt at best. Yeah, my first impressions was he, he was an arrogant little prick that didn't want to do what he needed to do. And I was right. I wasn't ready to get sober. Like, cocaine had been the only life I had known. Like, it was scary to think of life without it. Problem is, it was getting physically difficult for me to snort drugs anymore. My nose hurt in the morning after a long night of partying. My nasal cavities were just (laughs) falling apart. So I started doing drugs a different way. And in late 2013, I started smoking crack every day. 
When I'd be covering hearings at the Capitol, I would walk outside in my suit and tie and um, either dip into my car or usually behind a dumpster in an alley to get high. The crack high doesn't really last very long, so I was doing this quite a bit, making up excuses where I would leave the Capitol press room to go outside and smoke crack behind a dumpster across the street. And as the morning progressed, I would become more sketchy and paranoid. And that's the thing with crack or any type of cocaine or meth. It makes you super paranoid. It makes you feel super sketchy. So a lot of times I would just leave in the middle of the day. And I'd go home, close the curtains in my apartment so no one saw me, right? And just get high throughout the night, alone. In December 2014, I was laid off from my job covering the Capitol. Budget cuts, newspapers, you know. Around the same time, a guy I was really starting to fall in love with, a guy I was dating, broke up with me because of my drug use. Here we go again, broken record. It really was the coldest, darkest Christmas ever. I had no job, no money. My days consisted of walking my dog Benny in the morning and sitting at a bar as soon as it opened, getting a little drunk and then going home to get high the rest of the day. I was lying to my parents, to my friends. I kept conning people out of money. My life was in constant damage control. I can't tell you how exhausting it is to wake up every morning with regret wake up every morning panicking over how to fix the day before. I'm getting my stories confused when I would tell friends what was going on. Oh, my dog needs surgery. You know, all this other stuff that I would come up with. I couldn't even remember what the truth was. And there were a couple times where I actually overdosed. I don't remember any of it. I remember leaving the hospital, but I can't even tell you what I was doing leading up to it. So even though I was surviving an overdose, there would be times I'd be laying in bed praying for my heart to stop beating so that all my pain would go away. Then on January 25th, 2015, something happened. I had been up for three straight days, but I just smoked my last crack rock. Of course, I didn't have any money to buy any more. And I was sitting on the floor in my bedroom, listening to music on my cell phone in one hand and holding an empty crack pipe in the other. My dog, Benny, my best friend, was laying next to me. And I was listening to the Radiohead song, Fake Plastic Trees. And I listened to it over and over again on a loop. And I paid attention to the lyric, If I could be who you wanted all the time. If I could be who you wanted 
I sat there and I just thought of how so many people thought of me as this incredibly talented person, loving, funny, but I can never get out of my own way. I felt so helpless and hopeless. I was also listening to Josh Ritter's Change of Time. It's only a change of time. And these lyrics really got to me. Worlds for the weary, new lands for the living. I could make it if I tried. I closed my eyes, I kept on swimming. New worlds for the weary, new lands for the living. I could make it if I tried. Maybe it was time to try. I was so tired of being tired. Tired of the damage control, tired of the pain, tired of the lies. Tears were streaming down my face. I scrolled through my phone and came across Rob's number. He's the sponsor I mentioned before when I made a half-ass attempt to get sober. It was three in the morning. Who knows if this guy was even awake? Probably not. Or if he even had my phone number anymore. I had nothing to lose, though. I dialed the number. He answered. Hey, Vic, how's it going? And I just lost it. (laughs) I just, I was crying. I said, Rob, can you take me to a meeting tomorrow? And I've been sober since. I'm not a religious person, but in recovery, I embrace the possibility of a spiritual intervention. My recovery began with a 12-step program. Now I'm part of a Buddhist-based recovery network. My idea of a higher power may not be the same as yours, but in my spiritual recovery, the bottom line is this. I believe in a power greater than myself. I believe in a power greater than my addiction. I also believe in the power of community in my recovery, that I can go to Broncos games with other friends in recovery and stay sober. I can go to a Grateful Dead show and stay sober. I mean, these things are important to me because you got to have fun when you're sober. You have to live. You have to continue living your life. And um, it can be really challenging to because so much of that stuff was centered around drugs and alcohol. My name is Dan Dolger, and um, I was Vic's, and to some degree currently I'm still Vic's sponsor in the 12-step recovery program that he and I are both a part of. Vic and I, we've made it to a few dead shows, and um, it's just uh, psychologically safer when you're there with someone that you know knows you. You know you're safe. You know somebody is there that knows who you are and has your best interests in mind, and you're there to truly have fun. So we do a lot of that stuff. In July 2015, members of the Grateful Dead played Fare Thee Well shows in Santa Clara, California, and Chicago. I was there in both cities. It was billed as the last time the four surviving members would ever play together on stage. At one of the Santa Clara shows, my friend Ryan turned to me and asked, what are you going to do if they play Wharf Rat? Wharf Rat's a dead song about an alcoholic who's down on his luck. The song is so meaningful to a lot of people in recovery that 
it actually led to the creation of a sober group of deadheads called the War Friends. Sure enough, during the second set of Night 2, they played the song, and when these lyrics hit, I absolutely lost it. But I'll get back. But I'll get back on my feet someday. Life I'm living's no good. I'll get, a new start. I'll get a new start. Live the life I should. Live the life. I just collapsed in my friend's arms and and I cried and uh, about six months of being sober this was my first spiritual moment in recovery I was seeing the dead for the first time sober in my life and I was crying because I was happy I experienced another pivotal moment in my recovery with my dog. Benny was my lifelong companion, a beautiful brindle mutt. For many years, he saw me at my worst, doing drugs, not treating myself or others very well. But when I got sober, Benny got the longest walks of his life. We went hiking, went to parks. I could tell he was thrilled with my transformation. It was so great. But then one day, um, he didn't want to get up off the bed. He wasn't feeling too good. I took him to the vet, and they told me his kidneys were failing, and it was time to say goodbye. My mom and my sister went with me that day, and my sister drove on the way to the vet. I sat in the back seat with Benny, holding him, crying, telling him how much I love him. I said, I don't know why this is happening to you, buddy, but... I love you. I made an amends to him on the drive, basically telling him how sorry I was for all the years I did drugs and uh, left him alone while I was out all night. And uh, at the vet, he, uh, he fell asleep in my arms and, uh, and I said goodbye. The old Vic would have lost it. Like the old Vic would have not handled this moment without drugs. But instead of going to the bar, I called people in recovery. 
I talked about my pain. I shared my pain at meetings. I did not get high. I think I owed that to him. From downtown Denver, this is Colorado Public Radio News. I'm Vic Vela. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock will veto... A Shortly after Benny's death, I was hired full-time at Colorado Public Radio. My first ever job, sober. A friend suggested that uh, given Benny's advanced age, maybe he was ready to go a long time ago, but he waited until he knew I was going to be okay. Until I could take care of myself. I love you, Banny. Thank you, my good boy. So I'm doing better. Not perfect, but better. Look, my problems didn't just disappear when I got sober. Nobody's problems just disappear like that. I constantly have to work harder at behaving than most people. I really do. And I'm getting help for that. Things like anger management, behavioral issues. And that's okay, because that's the goal, is progress. And I still have trouble dealing with authority figures and dating, but I'm not afraid of these things anymore. I also wouldn't be here without the love and support of my parents and family, my sisters and my younger brother. And by the way, I talked about my dad's struggles with alcohol earlier. The man's been sober for 17 years. I celebrated five years of sobriety on January 25th, 2020. Look, I'm open and honest about my recovery, and that's what this podcast is all about. My guests and I are open about our past struggles to show others out there there is a way out, that recovery is possible, because the truth is we are all broken. That's how I got the name for this show. Every one of us is broken in some way or another. The more we shine a light on our problems, the less scary they are. So this podcast, it's for the people who are struggling, whether it's drugs, mental health issues, addiction. It's for people who are trying to get better and for the folks trying to help someone else in their life get better. So that's pretty much everyone, right? It's also dedicated to people I once knew and loved and lost. Like Richard. A jolly friend and an old deadhead who died of liver disease. Eddie. I once uh, loaned him a prepaid phone card at rehab. He took his own life by driving his car off the top of a parking garage. Damien. One of the first guys I ever loved and shared a bed with. He died of a pill overdose a few years ago. People I know who are no longer with us. Who I'll never see again. But for the rest of us, there is hope. If you're struggling with addiction or mental health issues or whatever is causing you suffering, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to feel like this anymore. You don't have to lie to your loved ones anymore. You don't have to wake up feeling like hell anymore. You don't have to live with fear and resentment and anger anymore. We can get better we can heal. We can learn to live in love. We can do it. We really can. And I'll close with the words of the Grateful Dead. We will get by. We will survive. 
Thank you all for listening. And may we all be free from suffering. Back from Broken, hosted by CPR's Vic Vela. You can hear this and other episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.